Well, and uh, I've been pastor of Brian Baptist Church a little bit over seven years now. And I calculate that I've preached now about a thousand sermons from this pulpit during that time. And not once did I ever cut a sermon short before I was done. So the likelihood of that happening is not very good. So I'm getting a little bit late start. So put away your watch and take out your Bible. And if you would open it to the, uh, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. And today in our study of Matthew's Gospel, we come to one of those little gems of Scripture that's one of the foundational building blocks for right living. You ever wonder sometimes where the uh, most important things and very basic things that you learned as a child came from? There are people that know nothing at all about the Bible. And perhaps their parents never had even one single devotional time with them when they were growing up. Yet they have a principle that they learned when they are very young. And they know that they need to live by this principle. Just a few blocks from our church, there's a daycare center that doesn't claim any religious affiliation. Uh, Children are taken in from many different types of families. They don't give any formal religious education there. But I can promise you that the children in this daycare have heard this over and over again. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now we teach that principle to our children because it establishes a right pattern of behavior. This is sometimes called the golden rule. And it's called a golden rule because it is so valuable. It's, it's a valuable for governing our behavior. But what most people don't know is that it came out of Jesus' most famous sermon. And it's really a, a verse that's found in a body of a lot of great teachings. In fact, if you take the golden rule away from its context, it's actually void or we're actually void of any possibility that we can fulfill it. Because this is the one of the things that you get when you trust Christ as your Savior. And apart from a relationship with God, knowing Him as the Savior, it is impossible to fulfill what we call the golden rule. Now today we're going to examine this rule that was given by Jesus. We're going to see why it's so peculiar, and we're going to put it back into the context in which it was given. So let's look at the scriptures today. We're starting in Matthew chapter 7, verse number 7. Stand with me, please, as we read God's word. Uh, Verse number 7 through verse 11 is what we studied last week, but we need to pick it up here because it's all contained in in a section here that goes together. In verse 7, Matthew 7, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you, whom if his son ask bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we're in your presence today. And we can look into your word and learn what you'd have us to learn. Lord, this is a very important principle. And let's see here today how that it's possible to keep that Keep this principle. We know that the only way that we can is through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
We ask you for help in the message today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Do you know why the golden rule is so valuable? If I were to tell you that, or give you a copy of the IRS tax code, and I were to tell you that you need to learn everything that's in that tax code so that you could address every question that could possibly come up concerning the tax laws of the United States. I don't know how big your house is, but I'm sure that it wouldn't be enough to contain all of the tax laws that have been given by our government. Now, the government tries to simplify it for, it just a little, uh, for us just a little bit. And they say, well, if you can't understand all the tax code, then just send all of your money in, and that'll take care of everything. But if you want to go the difficult route, what you have to do, you have all of these tax publications, you have all the tax forms, you have lawyers, you have accountants, and they help you to figure out the tax code and the tax laws of the United States. But what if I were to tell you that you really don't need all of that? What I have for you is just one law, and if you keep this one law, it sums up everything and all of your questions will be answered. Well, I think that you would probably tell me, keep all of your publications, keep all of your forms, keep your lawyers, and give me this one, this one rule that answers all of my questions. That would be a valuable tax law. Now, when it comes to God's law, that's why the golden law is so valuable. J.C. Ryle, who lived in the 18th century, said, This truth settles a hundred different points. It prevents the necessity of laying down endless little rules for our conduct in specific cases. Now, you may not realize this, but that is exactly what Jesus said. Look at it again, if you would. Matthew 7, verse 12. Therefore, all things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law, and the prophets. Now, point number one for your outline today is the summation of the law. When Jesus said, for this is the law and the prophets, it's the same as saying, here's how you can wrap it all up. Here is what you need to know. Of all the commands that are given in the Old Testament, all of the laws that were spoken by Moses and the prophets, they all come under this principle, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now, it seems almost incomprehensible that the daycare up the street has summed up the entire code of conduct that you find in the Bible in that one short sentence. Now, please don't go up there and tell them about this, because if you do, they'll think, uh, well, we're going to get sued for teaching Christianity. All of God's laws are summed up into this. Jesus said, this is it. You learn this, and you're good to go. It's the best education that you have. When you've got this, all of your questions will be answered. Now, you may be thinking today, well, that's great. That's the best news I ever had. Now we can close up shop and we can go home. And we'll quit at a quarter of 12. Well, that's not what we're going to do. It might be a great idea, but we've got to look at why Jesus puts it in this place and why he's given all these other teachings that surround it. Now, the problem is that we've heard this principle over and over again, but nobody does it. In fact, I want to show you why we don't And I want to show you that as simple as this is, we have all twisted this and we've never really got to the heart of it. Now, this is how we state it. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I mean, that is essentially what the Bible says, but that is not the way that we hear it. This is the way we hear it. Don't do to others what you would not want them to do to you. Don't do is negative. 
And it's a much easier principle to don't do unto others than it is to do unto others. In fact, did you know that Jesus was not the first one to state this principle? You can go back in history and you'll find out that before Jesus, this rule was given, but it was always stated negatively. Confucius, who lived 500 years before Christ, stated this, but he got it wrong. He said, what you do not want done to yourself, do not do to others. The Stoics that were uh, Greek philosophers that were followers of Zeno lived 300 years before Christ and then following that time. uh, There are a group of people that the Apostle Paul addressed when he was preaching in the city of Athens. We find them in Acts chapter 17 where it says, Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him, that's Paul, and some said, What will this babbler say? Others, some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. So here was Paul speaking to this group of Greek philosophers that were followers of a man named Zeno, a very important man at that time in, in, in history. And Zeno also stated this very same rule 300 years before Christ. He said, what you do not want done to you, do not do to anyone else. And then the Jews also had their own version of it 300 years before Christ also. And the Jews said, what is hateful to yourself, do to no other. So all of that's negative. Don't do, don't do, don't do. And Jesus nailed down the positive side, something that no one had ever done. And in the process, it was a complete game changer. Now, it's easy for us to don't do to someone, but it's a whole new ball game when you are told to positively do unto others what you want them to do to you. Now, if you go up to the daycare center and you examine their teachings, or if you remember what your mother said to you, it always comes out like this. Don't hit Johnny because you wouldn't like it if he hit you. So here we have this principle that was established 2,000 years ago. It's the golden rule. It settles a multitude of ethical problems. And in all of this time, we fail to get it right. What's the problem? Why do we fail to get this right? Well, we start with this. It's a problem of enmity. The Bible has a word for this. It calls it enmity, which means hostility. Because this is God's law, we're hostile towards it. Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 8, because the carnal mind, that's the mind who doesn't know Christ as Savior, the carnal mind is enmity with God and is not subject under the law of God, neither indeed can be. So here is a universal problem that stretches all the way back to the creation of man. Just a short time after man was created, Adam sinned, he broke God's law, and by that one sinful act, all people became sinners. And so you can take every crime, every hateful act, every bad thought, every sinister plot, everything that's wrong in your life, you can trace it back to that old sinful nature that was inbred in you by your first father, Adam. And so you're not going to get up in the morning and rush out and do good things for people. I mean, you're not going to purposely help anybody simply out of the goodness of your heart and that you would have no thought of return. And that's because all of us are selfish. All of us are looking out. We're born and bred to please self. So we can keep from doing bad things to others. We can if we really try. We can always attack this rule from the negative side, but the positive is beyond our grasp. And that's because our hearts do not permit it. Now, this is why 
I said that to get the golden rule, you must be a Christian. Now, you can argue with me that there are philanthropists in the world. There are people who do good deeds all over the world that have never heard of Christ. They aren't Christians. But I can promise you that for every good deed that is ever done, there is always a selfish motive. We can't escape it. Even if a person says, well, I'm a humanitarian. I'm doing this for the good of the human race because it ought to be done. Even that person is selfish because he declares, I am a humanitarian. He wants you to know who he is. So you can't get around this. The human nature has a selfish interest, and the only one that could ever change that is Christ. I mean, even for Christians, this is hard to do. It's hard to positively, for the purpose only of glorifying God, do good things for others. But when you do that, that is the character of God. That's what God would do. Now, I want to show you why it's true, why you don't do what you're supposed to do. And you may be indignant right now because I've said this about you. And if you are, you just proved my point. I mean, why? You you don't want to do anything or you don't want anybody to tell you that that you're doing things for a, a selfish motive. And the reason that you don't want me to tell you that is why? Because of pride. I'm not like that. I'm proud of myself. And what's pride but sin? And so every person without Christ is an enemy of God. There's this hostility, and it interferes. Uh, God's laws interferes with, our, with our, uh, our own independence. God has a standard that we live by, and God's standard always crimps our style. We do not like to live by God's laws because it's not what we want to do. So the whole problem here, it's a universal problem. We don't live according to the commandments because they always interfere with what we want to do. You know, I've often thought about this in the matter of a a man or a woman that has an affair. Why do they do that? Is it because they're thinking of the good of their husband or their wife? Uh, Is that why they do it? Do they do it because they think of their children? No. They do it because they're thinking of self. I deserve to be happy. This is why I'm doing it. I deserve to live a different life than this. I deserve to be happy. And so that's what we're taught. We're always going to take care of self, and we really don't care about the other person. And it stems from the enmity that we have against God. It's his law that says that we do this, and we don't like it. It's hostility towards God's law. Now, on the other hand, the golden rule is built upon the principle of equity. Now, you have to understand that every single person on the planet thinks just like you. The natural mind is always tuned to the same frequency. And that frequency is self. I deserve to be happy. You think that and so does everybody else. But the change that happens in a Christian life and what makes him different from everybody else, the thing that makes him happy is to glorify God. And showing God's character glorifies God. It shows what God would do. Now, I want to get to this principle a little bit more a little bit later, but what did Christ do that it's so uncommon for people to do? He divested himself of what is prized above all, and the book of Philippians says that he stepped down from his throne in glory, not thinking that keeping that position there was to be retained at all costs, but instead he stepped down in order to go to the death of the cross. Now, I want you to listen to something or notice something in this statement that's made in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 12, verse number 2, says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. What is his joy? Well, it was the accomplishment of the redemption of his people. He would be restored to glory with the Father, but with him, along with him, he would bring all of these redeemed people for whom he gave his life. Now we take that and we apply it to the golden rule. Christ became a man and he did for us what he would have wanted done for him if he had been in our place. If he was in our place as a sinner, he would have desired that someone would come and give his life a ransom for sin. He would desire that someone be able to take that sin away from him. So this is what he thought about first. He thought about what was needful for us, and he didn't think about how awful that the death of the cross would be for him. That is the principle of equity. Arthur Pink states it this way, whatever you would desire and deem best for yourself were you in their place, that is what you must do unto others. Nothing less than such a standard of unselfishness is our rule of righteousness. Have you noticed that everything right in this world first comes from God? It's impossible for you to get to Matthew 7 verse 12 without starting with God. Jesus said that the greatest commandment is thou shalt love the Lord thy God. In Matthew 22, verse 37, he says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. That is the summation of the law. Love God with your heart. And then he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you is a restatement of love thy neighbor as thyself. And you're never going to get to love thy neighbor until, first of all, you love God. Now, once again, Matthew 22, Jesus says the law and the prophets hang on these commands. They're the summation of God's law. That's why I say you have to be a Christian. No one who doesn't know God, who is not a Christian, a born-again, redeemed by the blood, spirit-led person, could ever keep this rule because they don't love God. To reject Christ is to reject God because Christ is God. Now, let's, let's tie this in then with the context of the, of the passage. Number two would be the success of our prayers because this follows this statement of Jesus about prayer. Verse number 7, he says, Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you whom if, son, if his son asks bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall the Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? Therefore, after all those statements, therefore, whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So why is it given what we ask? Why do we find when we seek? And why is the door opened when we knock? It's because that's the character of our Heavenly Father. He doesn't refuse. He's already shown us how much he cares for us. He was willing to do all for us. He sent Christ to die for us. And that was unbelievable agony for the Father. So what's required of us in this passage? 
How are we going to have success in our prayer lives? Well, I think there's a couple of ways that we can see it here. First of all, we are to follow the Father's example. A successful prayer life is yours when you follow the Father's example. Jesus said, therefore, do this. Now, let's relate this to what we've already learned back in chapter 6 concerning the Lord's Prayer. If you look back in chapter 6 now, at verse number 12, uh, this is in the body of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus says, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Then you go down to verse number 14. For if ye forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if ye forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So can you ask for forgiveness if you are an unforgiving person? Well, neither could you ask God for good things if you are a person who refuses to give good things to others when they ask. Now, the Father is always positive with this when he gives. His response is never, never a negatively based response. Now, let's go back for just a moment to that principle of equity. It is possible that in the principle of equity, you could give a negative response. Now, let's say for a moment that I don't like Corey. And Corey, I just got his attention over there. Why, why don't I go up to Corey and punch him in the nose? Well, there's two reasons. I can't reach him. The second is he could beat the stuffing out of me if I did. So I don't punch him in the nose because I know that I have a nose that can be punched. But that shouldn't be the only reason that I don't do it. That's a negative reason. The positive reason why I don't is because he is a fellow believer. He is a Christian and I'm to love him in Christ just as Christ loved me. Now, if you live like that, are you constantly going to be upset with other members of the church? If you live that way and you think that way, are you going to gossip about other people? You see, the Father expects you to go out of your way to positively do good things for others because that's what the Father did. So don't keep from punching people in the nose because you don't want to be punched in the nose. Go up and powder somebody's nose because that's the way that you want to be treated. Now, secondly, there's another great principle that we learn here about success in our prayer lives, and that is that you receive a reload of supplies. The character of God is to give, and friends, God has a whole lot to give. The Scripture says that he's able to give above what we ask. He's able to give above what we think. And here's what I know about God. Whatever I give away to others, God is right there ready to fill me back up again. Now, when I was growing up, I saw this a lot of times with my dad. Over and over I saw this because he was a very caring person. He was always helping someone. We had people stay in our house when they had no place to go. My dad would give people money. And there were often times when those same people would turn on him and they would take advantage of him. But that didn't discourage him. He always kept giving. He didn't stop. And that's because God kept bringing the blessings back over and over again. And the more that he gave, the more that God gave him to give. You wouldn't believe the numbers of people that passed through our house when I was young. I remember a particular instance when there was a family in our church that had, they weren't members of our church, but they lived nearby, and they had abandoned their children. And we don't know how long this was, but there was a seven-year-old that was taking care of two younger siblings. And they were found in the house, and, and, and they were down to the last little bit that they had to eat. And even this, this little boy, this seven-year-old boy, it was in the wintertime, and he saved one last piece of coal 
to put in the fire to keep his brothers and sisters warm. Well, they found those little children, and they had no place to, nothing to do with them, no place to take them at that time. And so I remember that my dad put those three kids into our car, and they'd been living that way in their own filth for so long that you couldn't even stand to sit in the car with them. And this, as I said, was the winter time. We lived 50 miles from the church. And I remember my dad put those kids in the car, and we rode all the way home with the windows down because you couldn't stand the smell. But my mom and my dad, they took those kids and they put them into the bathtub, cleaned them all up. And I remember that bathtub looked like mud when, it was, when they were done. But cleaned them all up and they kept those children until someone could take care of them. I mean, that was a sacrifice to do that. I remember there was a family that moved from Oregon to Kentucky and where we lived. And this man was a preacher and he brought his family with him in order to go to school. But when he came, he didn't have a job. He had no place to live. And I remember that my dad took this entire family in. They lived with us until they could get on their feet. And then when they left, my dad gave them the furniture to furnish their house. I remember another time in our church when there was a a family that was going to lose their home. The father was an alcoholic and he abandoned the family with four kids and they were going to lose their home. My dad actually bought their house and let them live there rent-free. Could he afford to do that? No, he couldn't afford to do it. But because he gave, God kept supplying his need. God kept giving back to him, and the blessings always came. So God has a way of reloading. No matter what you give, he'll always return your need. Now, do you think that God is going to do that when you're selfish? Do you think that if you're unwilling to help someone else and you're still looking out for number one and that's all you ever think about, you don't care about anybody else, do you think that God's going to keep pouring in your supplies? You see the change that has to take place? Now let me relate that for just a moment to tithing. I'm going to have to get a little bit personal with you and I hope that you'll take this in the right way. But what I do here, quite frankly, is I make a living by preaching to you. I didn't go out and choose it as a profession so I could make money. Trust me on that one. But I'm preaching to you. This is the way that I have to make my living. Now, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, I want you to turn there for just a minute. We're going to read some scripture. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. In this scripture, the Apostle Paul writes there that those who preach the gospel should live of the gospel. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, uh, the Apostle Paul gives some common sense examples that are taken right out of the Old Testament Scripture. Now, if you look here, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning with verse number 9, it says, For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Doth God take care for oxen, or saith he it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that ploweth should plow in hope, and he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. Now, does all that make sense to you? Did God give a law about feeding an ox, this ox that goes about lumbering all day on the threshing floor, marching round and round in a circle, treading out the grain, separating the wheat from the chaff, Did God give this law that you are supposed to feed your ox when he does that because he was an animal rights activist? Is that why God gave that law? Well, certainly not. There's a spiritual principle involved. Look at verse 11. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we reap your carnal things? 
If others be partaker of this power over you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Now, verse 13. Do ye not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple, and they that wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Now, do you think it would be right then for you as a member of the church to sit in your pew and refuse to bring your tithes and offerings to God's work? What if you went to work tomorrow and you heard this from your employer? Well, I've decided I'm not going to pay you this week. I mean, you go out and you figure out the best way that you can to feed your family and to pay your bills. You don't get a paycheck this week. What would you do? Well, the first thing you do, you get up in that guy's face and you would demand your money. And you would tell him, there are laws about this. There are laws of the land that says you have to pay somebody when they work. You can't just not pay me. It's the law of the land. Let me tell you something. Bringing your tithes and offerings to God's house and to the church is the law of the Lord. And it's higher than the law of the land. So if you love your brother, are you going to cheat him? Would you want to be treated that way? And yet there are people who sit in the pew week after week and refuse to bring their tithes and offerings... And they're cheating God when they do. And the Bible doesn't say cheating. It calls it robbery. You're robbing God. And you're cheating the ox that treads out the corn. Now you see what J.C. Ryle meant when he said, This little rule covers a multitude of situations. Do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. Prevents the necessity of laying down endless little rules for our conduct. Do unto others answers a whole lot of questions in a thousand different areas in a thousand ways. Do unto others will answer a lot of your questions. Now I want us to look at one more important truth from the verse. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Number three is the sanction for all people. And I say all people in only one sense. That the Apostle Paul said that God has commanded every person to repent. And so everybody should repent. You should trust Christ. You, you should become a Christian. And you should live by God's law. Now several months we were studying ago, we were studying about this. And we studied in depth how that every person has fallen short of the commandments. It's fallen short of the law. And this particular one is the death knell to us. Now then we were actually discussing you should love your neighbor as yourself. And I've already said this, this do unto others as you would have them do unto you is a restatement of that law. And maybe you can remember this, that we talked about how none of us have actually kept that law. So if this commandment is the summation of the law, and yet we've not kept it, then we've not fallen short of just one little piece of God's law. Actually, we've fallen short of the whole thing. It's the summation of the law and the prophets. Now, the second part of the Decalogue, that's the Ten Commandments. The second part of the Decalogue is comprehended in this statement, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. So that means that six out of six of the last commandments of the Ten Commandments we have not kept when we don't keep this one law. And further than that, we've actually missed the first four as well, that we are to love God. Because if we love God the way we should, we could keep the last six. So that's 10 out of 10 that we've missed. And here all along, we thought we were doing pretty well. Oh, well, I miss it a little bit here and a little bit there. That's not what God says. God said, you've missed the whole thing. This is the law and the prophets. So what do we have to do? I mean, what's the problem here? I mean, why do we think we're doing so well? 
You know why? Because we have been comparing ourselves to everybody that we think is a little bit worse than we are. Or maybe a whole lot worse than we are. That's who we compare ourselves to. But what do you have to do? This, you must compare yourself with Christ. We're comparing ourselves to the wrong standard. So here we are, we're this little skewed crooked line, crooked line comparing ourselves with this big crooked line over here. And we think we're straight because that's so crooked. But actually, we're comparing ourselves to the wrong thing. We should be comparing ourselves to Christ. And you know what the Bible says? Every single time that you come up against God's holy law, you'll find out you have fallen short. When the Apostle Paul said in the book of Galatians that the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, that's exactly what he meant. It teaches you, you can't do this by yourself. You have to have Christ. That's why justification only comes by faith in Christ. Christ is the one who kept God's law perfectly. And it's faith in him that causes his perfection to become our perfection. And this is why that we keep going back to this law and measuring ourselves by the right standard. Because when we do, we'll find out or we'll never be mistaken That we could ever do this on our own. We can't do it on our own. The goal is always out there in front of us. We have to keep pursuing it. Self has to be beaten back. And God's glory is our only pursuit. And so we strive for perfection. But we can only find it. It can only be attained in Christ. Now here's the thing folks. Don't do unto others. Is never good enough for God. Don't do will never be good enough for God. You must have positive self-denial. There must be positive action on the behalf of others. And it does not come by default. Now, is it difficult for you to do it? Even if you're a Christian, is it difficult for you to do it? Yes, it is. And this last point I want to give you is that this is the cost of Christianity. It is the cost of Christianity. In Matthew 16, Jesus said, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You know, there's something that I get weary of. I get weary of TV preachers who prance around the stage and they talk about how good it's going to be when you become a Christian. I mean, it is so easy. You are a kingdom kid, and so God is going to bring you riches. He'll bring favor your way. You can live your best life now. All that you need to do is just jump on the bandwagon with Jesus. But the truth of the matter is, this is the hardest thing you are ever going to do. The hardest thing that you'll ever do is to follow Christ. And you know why? Because it's the path of denying self. You weren't made for this originally. I mean, when you were born, I should say. When you were born, you weren't made to deny self. It's the hardest part, to beat back self and to put others first. It goes against your grain. It's unnatural for you. You've never lived this way in all of your life, and you're not going to like it. That is, until you get really in tune with God. The prosperity gospel says, you're going to love this, because you're going to get everything you ever wanted. Houses and cars and stocks and bonds and luxuries, you name it, you'll get it. But you know what Jesus' gospel says? It says, it was never about you. It was never about you. It has always been about God. And secondly, what? About others. It's always been about God and about others, not you. And so you live this way as a Christian, and you want to live this way because this is what Christ did. 
You know what Christ said? He said, I did not come to be ministered to. He said, I came to give my life a ransom for many. But you know, so many Christians have this wrong because what do they do? They think it was all for them. Church is all for them. The singing, the music program, it has to be for them. The preaching, it has to be for them. All the programs that we have in church, it must be for them. And they soak all of that up and they are never the ones who are in the place of sacrifice. But that's what Christ did. And if you're going to be like him, that's the cost of discipleship. That's the cost of Christianity, being like him. And he gave himself for others. And when the Bible was first written, there were no chapters and verses. We talked about this a little bit on Wednesday night. Chapters were given much later. Verses were given even later than that. And so I know what I'm going to tell you next, what I'm going to read, was not the intention of the person who gave us the the verses. I mean, either this is a very strange coincidence that this happened, or divine providence caused it. We all know this verse, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But strangely enough... 1 John 3.16 is a very similar verse that people really don't quote very often, do they? And it says, Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now that is astounding. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Now by the way, you might want to underline that verse. The next time a Jehovah Witness comes to your house, pull out John 3, 3, 1 John 3.16, where it says here, God, because God laid down his life for us. God laid down his life for us. And who is Jesus? He's God. No matter what the JWs say, Jesus is God. He laid down his life for us. But I really wanted you to notice here, the important thing going with this sermon is the second part of the verse. And the second or last part of the verse is Matthew 7, verse 12. Do unto others. We ought to lay down our life for the brethren. That's real love. That is the high cost if you want to follow Jesus. And that's what he demands. So what have you done for others? You might want to ask yourself that question, and then you'll be able to determine how much that you really love God. How do you measure up to that? And you know something I think that you'd find that you fall far short, and I do as well. And that's why I'm always driven to Jesus Christ. I can't do it myself. This drives me to Christ because he's the only way that I'm ever going to be right with God. And so I encourage you, if you don't know him, trust him. There are high demands that he gives, but you always know this. With every demand, he's always there right there. He's always there with you to help you with it. He's there to walk beside you. And when you trust him, you know what he'll do? He'll help you to overcome this self-destructive, the self-destructive love of self. He'll help you to overcome it. And then he'll help you to have joy in serving others. And you'll do it for all the right reasons. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today that we're able to come into your presence again. We thank you, Lord, for what we learn out of Matthew chapter 7, verse number 12. And Lord, as we've stated today, it all starts with you. 
We can't even think about keeping this kind of a commandment without starting first with you. We must love you with all of our heart, our soul, and our mind. And when we do that, when your Holy Spirit has drawn us to you and we do that, then we can start to do for others, not in the negative, in the positive, to do for others as we would have them do to us. Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ who lived this principle, who came to this earth to die for us because he knew that's what we needed most. Thank you for that. Lord, draw some soul to you today. Christians, revive our hearts so that we might look at these commandments and we might see that this is what you've told us to do and we are to act like the Father. Help us to do that, Lord, to give and give and give just as you've given to us. Bless in this time of invitation and singing today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.